Hey everyone, welcome to this week's installment of Tree Hugger Radio. I'm Jacob Gordon. I'm Brian Merchant. We're going to bring you through some of the best, freshest, most pressing, and most interesting stories from the pages of Tree Hugger. If we don't give you something that you can use to save the world, we'll at least give you something you can use to sound smart at a dinner party. Last week, you probably noticed our audio was sounding better than usual. That was uh, because we were in a lovely studio down at Discovery. This week, I messed everything up by leaving town. So I'm in LA. Brian is in Brooklyn. And uh, next week... You rode your bike to LA, right? That's right. Yes. Yeah. It, uh, it was record yeah. time. Record time. I had a right. tailwind, though. <laughs> Earth Day is the 22nd. I don't have any Earth... Do you have Earth Day plans, Brian? I do have some Earth Day plans. Uh, anybody who's in New York City should maybe check out Grand Central Station. I, I don't want to divulge too much, but there's going to be some cool back-to-the-roots Earth Day activism stuff going on. And it, should be, it should be a blast, so check that out. It's, it's connected to Occupy, and, uh, but it'll be fun. It'll be fun. So if you want, if you want to see there. Brian Merchant get arrested... Go to uh, show up. I'll be the guy screaming at the top of my lungs, pepper strays streaming down my face. We'll have to broadcast the podcast from uh, your jail cell. We'll do live. Yeah, I'll have a live stream. You know, I'll be one of those guys with the iPhone cams. (laughs) We're going to run through some quick stories and then dig into some deeper ones. Obama's put together a new fracking oversight group. Uh, As you can tell, fracking continues to be an increasingly big part of environmental headlines across the country. This time, it's an executive order that's created a high-level working group to coordinate these disparate agencies in government that oversee natural gas drilling, which, because fracking is this non-conventional way of extracting gas from shale, seems to not fall under the regular, typical regulatory frameworks. I don't have a completely clear picture of what this all means, but I do know that the petroleum industry has responded positively to this, whereas environmentalists are not so pleased, if that's any indication of uh, which way the wind blows on this one. Right. Well, yeah, this, you know, the environmental groups are angry because it means that uh, it'll expedite the process for fracking groups, for natural gas companies who want to want to get it done quicker. That's why they're happy about it. They're happy because, uh, you know, it means less red tape and the sooner that they can get the their drills in the ground, the better. Uh, so the move was intended to uh, pacify natural gas folks. Uh, but the funny thing is, is that Romney, Mitt Romney, who's now the, his opponent uh, in the presidential elections, has was condemned him for doing this, which doesn't even make sense. I don't even get how he condemned him. But uh, you know, there's still there's there's a lot of gray area here, so it's it's one to watch. And the other thing I wanted to add about this one is that the EPA today also finalized the fracking rules that uh, that forces industry to um, comply with their emission standards. I don't know if you know that uh, these fracking operations end up spewing a lot of methane gas, which is a really potent greenhouse 
greenhouse gas into the atmosphere when they do them because they're they're kind of done slapdash and they're fast and they don't tap into them. So they're spraying, uh, you know, methane emissions or spewing this stuff into the into the atmosphere. And it almost one study found that it neutralized all of the savings. You know, you hear so much about how nat gas is supposed to be good. You know, it's less greenhouse gas emissions, but all the methane that we lose during the fracking process turned out to put it on par with coal. It was that bad. So today the EPA has got these rules out that are that are going to hopefully put an end to that. And companies have uh, uh, have like 30 months to fully comply with, with these rules. So they got a couple years. Yeah, I think people are going to hear a lot more about the effect of methane on the overall environmental impact of natural gas in the next couple months. I think People are going to be hear methane, hear methane a lot. In uh, cleaner, greener energy, in Abu Dhabi, they're testing out a concept for a wind turbine, a company called Iole Water. This turbine looks like a normal windmill, but it's got within it the ability to absorb and transpire water out of the humidity in the air and funnel it down, purify it, and collect it up to a thousand liters of water per day, they say. So in addition to the 30 kilowatt output of the turbine, you're getting clean water that's just pulled out of the pulled out of the air. Megan Tracy covered this one for us on, on Treehugger and man, I tweeted this one a couple days ago and it was colossal. Like the most retweeted thing I've had in in weeks. So this was obviously, and and it's obvious why this is so attractive to people. This is that's just such the perfect poster child for what a you know whether this is vaporware or not. I guess no pun intended, right? Uh, <laughs> this is what the future sh- we imagine would look like: clean energy, pulling you know clean water out of the air for remote communities. It's like it's like Flost in Paradise in uh, the Fifth Element or something. It's exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> Except there's no Ruby Rod. Uh, other good news. Last week was so depressing. I'm trying to pull some encouraging stories. Emperor penguins, which have been thought to be declining to a precipitous degree, seem to be in better shape than we thought. Using satellite imagery of of Antarctica, uh, researchers are finding a whole bunch of new populations of emperor penguins. Recently this week, they found 44 clusters of emperor penguins, seven of them entirely new, and they've upped their total estimates of the overall population to about double what it was before. So 595,000 is roughly where they're placing the number now. And this is all through satellite imagery. So there aren't even any feet on the ground counting penguins, which is very cold and stinky work. Antarctica, (laughs) by the way, is very smelly. It's covered in penguin poop. Little known fact, those flies down there, they reek. (laughs) And here's another interesting one. There's been a breakthrough in artificial photosynthesis. Researchers at the Swedish KTH Royal Institute of Technology have created a catalyst that can break water into oxygen and protons, which then becomes hydrogen, at a turnover rate of 300 oxygen molecules per second per catalyst. And that probably sounds like gibberish to all of us. The important part is this sets a new record for turnover frequency, and that is a major breakthrough in artificial photosynthesis. Now, the 
goal is not to create electricity. Can I interject here for a yeah, second? Yeah, of course. And, uh, I have no you idea what you're talking are you about. Insulted? I, I'm, I'm lost. I, can we? Can we? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm lost too. But I, you know, I'm trying to get my way through this. It sounded good, though. It sounded neat. Okay, so I'll- it's using the similar processes that plant leaves do to create right. hydrogen. Right. Which is incredibly efficient. So, yeah, this is kind of behind-the-scenes research. It's not a solar cell that will power your MacBook Pro the way a sunflower leaf does or something like that. Well, then why do we care about it? I mean, uh, let's, let's just skip it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, moving on. I think you're mad that we were no, that, that, that there's good news, and you're just trying to rush to the, the Keystone XL update. Yeah, can we get to the part yeah, okay. about how you Bring us right back everything. down to Earth. <laughs> No, no, no. Finish, the, finish your photosynthesis. No, stuff. that's I it. Like no, that. I'm done. Oh, we're done. Okay. Well, then, uh, yeah. Well, then Keystone XL is back on the menu uh, again. Since the last time we said that again, it, you know, it's it's every couple weeks now. In fact, you know, it had been a little while. We, I was worrying about these guys, uh, but the Republicans they they love Keystone XL, and they you know they think it's a winning issue. So the the GOP is once again trying to slap a measure approving their favorite pipeline uh, into unrelated legislation. This time, it's transportation legislation that would renew funding for the nation's transit programs, highways trains, that kind of thing. But because they always see a window to make this all about politics, they've snuck an amendment in there that approves the Keystone XL tar sands pipeline, which, as you know, would connect the Alberta tar sands, one of the most environmentally destructive projects on the planet Earth, all the way down 1,700 miles across uh, America's heartland down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, Obama has vetoed this project before when they tried tried this trick uh, because they circumvented the review process. Whenever a pipeline goes across the border, the State Department has got to put uh, a special investigation. They got to complete a, a you know a review process that takes time. And Obama has said that he'll veto anything that tries to circumvent that process. Well, they're trying to do it again. And why are they doing it? Because uh, the majority of Americans have bought the GOP's line on this one, which is, you know, energy from a friendly neighbor and lower gas prices. Both are completely bunk. This thing will not lower gas prices. Every economist on the planet will tell you that it will not lower gas prices, but they're, but they're trying to bring it to the front because it's an election season issue. Got it. Got it. So we'll keep an eye on that one as well. A new study out, and this actually wasn't in Treehugger this week. I pulled it out of the New York Times, has found that Americans are looking at the weird weather that they're seeing this past winter and this spring and more than ever connecting it with climate change, human-induced climate change. Uh, I I quote the Times saying, a large majority of Americans believe that this year's unusually warm winter and last year's blistering summer and some other weather disasters were probably made worse by global warming. The survey was done by the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication. They surveyed 1,000 adults, and this is by far the most detailed surveying so far to connect these issues, which is something we speculate a lot about, but now we see it in much starker terms. This is such good news. I'm so glad to see this because that means that uh, the majority of Americans are right. You know, 
just about every climate scientist out there will tell you that climate change may not have caused specifically this weather phenomena, but it is absolutely exacerbating them. It, it is, this is the, precisely the kind of stuff that scientists have been predicting for years that we'd see, you know, hotter, hotter, uh, hotter temperatures, more extreme, uh, you know, weather events, especially concerning rainfall and uh, hurricanes, not so much tornadoes, but this is people, people are getting it. It's, I mean, you can only have so many crazy shattered records before people start getting the message. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But speaking of, of surveying people's attitudes on environmental issues, uh, you've got a story about people in the Gulf coast, right? I do because we're coming up on the anniversary of the BP spill that uh, made headlines uh, two years ago. The big news is now that there, there's been a survey completed kind of about attitudes, people's reactions, the long-term reactions that people have had to, uh, to the spill. And it turns out that a pretty strikingly small portion of people have actually decided that uh, that uh, it's worth being concerned about other uh, realms of the environment besides just oil washing up on their shores. Uh, and by other, I mean things like offshore drilling or climate change and so forth. But the survey found that only one-fourth of Gulf Coast residents who were impacted by the spill changed their mind about uh, environmentalism at all. Uh, and that number raised a little bit if they were impacted adversely economically. So 35% of folks. So if if uh, you were a shrimper and you had to shut down for a year or two, uh, then you'd probably be more likely to, to care a little bit more about the environment. But but to me, the, the, those numbers were a little low, and I and I've and it's been this kind of sense that I haven't been able to shake since uh, I was down there in the Gulf uh, when when it was happening, and everybody was so worked up, and it was this colossal event, life changing. People were going nuts, and understandably so. There is this looming mass of oil out there, and it really seemed like this big event. But ever since I got back, and I've been following the story since. I've been waiting, waiting for something to happen, waiting for uh, for the political fallout or for and and nothing. You know, there's been no meaningful change to the way that we regulate the offshore drilling process. There's been no meaningful laws taking a harder look at the chemical dispersants that we drop en masse to break up oil. There's been no meaningful change at all to the way that we, we get our oil from these offshore rigs. And the survey kind of confirmed that, well, only a fourth of the people who actually live there even care if, that we, whether we yeah, do or not. Yeah. You know, they, they, their mind hasn't been changed. And, I, and, and part of me was, you know, well, how could that be? How could you be so blind? But you know, I didn't grow up in that area. You, 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 most people don't grow up in what's essentially, you know, oil country. Oil in Louisiana and the areas hardest hit by the spill. You know, the oil industry gives gives the most most jobs. It creates most jobs. Uh, so naturally, you're going to be a little slower to condemn your bread and butter. You know, and so these guys uh, rely on oil uh, money for to keep their economy running. So it's so it's a it's a much steeper uphill battle 
than than it is for most of us. Uh, you know, sitting here in New York City, uh, you know, writing for an environmental website. Of course, I'm going to go. <laughs> that oil spill is terrible. Let's why don't we regulate the oil companies and you know why don't we stop offshore drilling? You know, but but for these guys that 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 kind of depend on the jobs. Uh, it's, it's something that the environmental movement needs to, needs to address and could do a better job of addressing, I think, pointing out where bridges could be. Like, okay, we're not going to do coal, but what are we going to do instead? Well, can we get them clean energy jobs? Can we, what, what, what can we do? Let's think more about these bridges. In, uh, in news that's good for getting off of oil in general from the Transportation Department, we have a story in Treehugger this week pointing to a study that the Union of Concerned Scientists did looking at the impacts of charging up electric cars uh, from the grid in various parts of the country, which is something that, so I write about cars a lot, and one of the most common things you hear from people who are skeptical of EVs having a future or being environmentally sustainable is they cite numbers or they sort of beg the question, you know, if we're filling up EVs from the grid, and the grid is powered by coal or natural gas, you know, are we actually worse off? And and that's a great question, actually, because just because there's no tailpipe on that vehicle, it doesn't mean that there's no carbon dioxide emissions from it. It just happens to be on the other end of the wire um, rather than coming out of the engine that's underneath your hood. So this study is fascinating. The Union of Concerned Scientists did it. And um, The bottom line, what they found is that driving an electric car wherever you live in the U.S. is better for the climate and will save you money than uh, over driving a regular internal combustion gasoline car. Now, why the emphasis on wherever you live? This is because the national power grid varies. So depending on where you live, your electricity that's coming out of the socket in your house will come from a variety of different sources. If you plug in your EV in North Dakota, it's going to be a different mix of power than if you live in New York or California. So they rate regions of the country in this study as good, better, and best places to charge an EV. And what they find is that 45% of Americans actually live in one of these areas that they deem best. So that's really Really good news. Nearly half of us live in like optimal uh, uh, regions for charging up, which means EVs. not coal powered. Basically, it means a minimal input of coal right. and a and a and a maximal input of renewables and um, lower carbon uh, power generation. Right. And what they find is that in these regions, so in the areas that they call best, an electric car has lower overall emissions than a fifty mile per gallon gasoline car. And there's really only one 50-mile-per-gallon gasoline car, as far as I know, and that, that's the Prius. Um, so in California and most of New York, where the grid is even cleaner than that, driving an EV is more like driving an 80-mile-per-gallon car. Well, there you go. That's great. because elect- And you actually, yeah. you, you drove an EV today. I did. Earlier Tell today, it was what you, what uh, Ford, Ford's Focus Electric is kind of quietly debuting. They've shipped some of these out to some commercial centers, but... Uh, it's a great car, you know. We're we're seeing Volt sales are up. Nissan Leaf is is selling well, and and now mm-hmm. the, the Ford Focus uh, is it. You know, it's a, it, it was. I was really impressed actually. It was a neat. It was neat enough to kind of excite 
electric car wonks, but it was also kind of stayed and had kind of a classic aesthetic uh, and, and played played along those lines enough to kind of pacify those who might be put off by some futuristic electro car. Uh, but yeah, no, it drove smooth you know responsive braking it had this neat little little game you can play while you're driving where it if you're at a full charge it'll have it has this little screen display right behind the steering wheel where all these butterflies will be flying around and they'll fly off as you drive uh and the more efficiently you drive the you know the longer they'll stay in the frame so you try to keep them keep them around so they have, and it has like built-in features where you have like a little uh, GPS that's specifically designed to guide you to a charging station, and we we put that on, and I was surprised that there was, you know, we were we were on the the west side of Manhattan, uh, east side of Manhattan, excuse me, over on 10th Avenue, and he clicked it on, and within a mile there was like six or eight already. I didn't even know there were any charging stations that were publicly available, but I guess they're they're popping up faster than I, I had given it credit for. But, but yeah, real yeah. fun ride, Ford Focus Electric. It's going to be, uh, I think, $39,000 before the rebates, and depending on where you live, you know, the federal credit is 7500 so that takes right. that chunk off for buying an, an EV uh, and a lot of states will give you even more so and to cherry pick one more stat out of this union of concerned scientists study they cite that and this is based off looking at 50 cities across the country and averaging them together um, driving an EV saves between 750 and 1200 dollars a year over a comparable gasoline car and that's based on 350 a gallon gas which is not something we've seen for a while so um, despite the upfront cost you may make it back quicker than you thought yeah it's it's great I mean they're they're, they're here they're I mean they've been quote unquote here for a long time now but now yep. they're here they're in the market and we're seeing this threshold and it's kind of exciting to see when they will finally kind of just like burst through because there's a lot of pent-up demand and we'll see we'll see what happens I mean George HW Bush just bought bought a volt nice he, really he did good for him. he bought a volt and that kind of we'll see if he drives it yeah I think he bought it for his yeah. first son but <laughs> as a footnote to the story I'll also add another another thing to come across the tree hugger radar this week as far as gasoline cars go the u.s has hit uh, or passed the 24 mile per gallon mark for the first time ever the university of USA. michigan transportation USA. research institute <laughs> i wish uh chanting was allowed on this show but it's it's not sadly <laughs> um, denied last month for the first time in U.S. history, the average MPG for new cars sold is 24.1. So, headed in the right direction, I guess. Slowly but surely. Yeah, yeah. Last week, we talked a bunch about chicken feathers <laughs> and all the gross stuff that uh, they find in, in chicken chicken feathers being a reliable proxy for what's in the chicken parts that you eat. eat. Uh, yeah, so so this is actually terrific news and, and a real big step forward, and it's all thanks to the FDA. So there's been a new ruling on antibiotics in livestock. Did you, did you read the story? Did you catch this? I did. I did. Okay. It's good news. Yeah, so livestock get filled with 
antibiotics. In fact, 80% of all the antibiotics sold in the United States are used in farm animals, and they're fed to them, mostly just thrown into their feed, not necessarily because they're sick, but because it makes them grow bigger and faster. Right. Now, because of a new FDA ruling, farmers will have to actually get a prescription from a vet to give antibiotics to their animals. A big part of the reason that this ruling is passed is to limit the development of superbugs or bacteria that they over time become resistant to antibiotics. So the New York Times says that at least 2 million people are sickened and an estimated 99,000 people die every year from hospital-acquired infections, the majority of which result from such resistant strains. So these are the superbugs. Now, we don't know exactly what the connection is between these sorts of sicknesses and death and antibiotic use in animals. But as I said, 80% of the antibiotics that are sold in the U.S. go into animals via pill, food, or injection. So there's strong suspicion that this is where the superbugs are coming from, and therefore the FDA has stepped in saying that only if a vet says your animal is sick can you administer it antibiotics. And and if I'm not mistaken, that's a really big change from the way things have been done over the last 30, 40 years. Oh, yeah. If that gets up, upheld, that could change a lot of things. I mean, yeah, yeah, like you said, this is common practice in factory farms to to just pump their animals full of antibiotics. Uh, yeah, it's because to help them grow so they don't have to, you know, they, they viewed it as a preemptive measure against sickness <laughs> foolishly, as we've seen, because it did allow for, you know, the development of, these, of those super bugs that have evolved to to combat the yeah, now like if you got up every morning and popped a couple tetracycline just to you know be on the safe side <laughs> right just swallowing cipro for fun <laughs> uh speaking of food you got an earful this last weekend in dc you were at a conference where every possible food topic was was probably covered right that's right. Yeah, it was uh, the it was a future tense project, which is this collaborative sort of venture between uh, the Slate Online Magazine, uh, the New America Foundation, and uh, the Arizona State University. So they do these events and run this blog on Slate, and uh, it's all about thinking about you know what's going to happen in the future. And the topic of this conference was. Uh, was feeding the world as the earth cooks. So essentially, how are we going to, you know, you know I, I like that. Yeah. But, uh, it's, it's, it's true. How, we've got to think about how we're going to feed ever more people, uh, in worsening conditions. So, and, you know, changing dr- conditions that are tra- changing drastically. You know, a lot of land that is uh, arable now won't be in 30 years. A lot of places that are relatively dry and predictable now won't be in 30 years as uh, climate change continues. Uh, so so what do we do? Like, how do we get all this, uh, this incredibly complex uh, global food system that is international and it's wasteful and already this it's this big broken mess already you know there's too, way too many people there's about a billion people in the world that are hungry meanwhile we're just wasting billions of tons of food in the developed world uh so how to it's it's already a challenge right now on how to even that up 
And there were some interesting ideas, you know, ran the gamut. There was a film documentarian there who, from Graham Merriweather from American Meat, and he noted that uh, we have to get more people interested in farming so we can bring up sort of a new class of farm of, of younger sort of sustainable farmers because we need to do sustainable meat. That was his b- big push. He says that he noted that we have more people in jail in the United States than we have farming, which is crazy. Uh, uh, another gentleman, Gabor Forgax, who's a professor at the University of Missouri, has uh, engineered lab-grown meat, and he's eaten it, and he has lived to tell the tale, and he thinks that the solution to the world's uh, food problems is lab-grown meat. We need to grow all this meat. It requires less energy. It's, uh, it doesn't require slaughtering any animals. It can be done efficiently, or so he says when pressed on the issue. He uh, didn't really give too many details, but you know, there's all different kinds. You know, and there's even uh, a, a pro-GMO uh, scientist, Nina V. Fedorov, the biotech pioneer and the science and technology advisor to uh, the previous Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice. She's been one of the biggest GMO boosters out there, and she really thinks that you know that herbicide tolerant soybeans are the wave of the future that these that they can you can do no till farming where you where the soil stays rich and you don't have to you don't have to till it if you use this 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 GMO uh <laughs> soybean so clearly that's a controversial controversial proposition uh, but good for them for bringing in bringing an actually yeah. pretty diverse sounding group of uh theorists here absolutely it wasn't just a bunch of organic farmers patting each other on the back it was right. definitely well you know like there's you know and it's it is and we i feel like the environmental movement does have a counter argument uh, ready to to those GMO propositions, and that's that. You know, we absolutely can if we organize well. We can do, or you know, the the organic thing. We can organize uh, local local systems that 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 can produce as much. But you know, it's it it is an interesting element to the to the discussion, and it's it's you can't just write it off by saying no evil, no, you my, can't. evil Monsanto like screw the I mean first of all it's just a bad way to address it, but you know given the way that we are the current farming system which does need reform as uh, that was one of the first things at the gate Sarah Sher the president of Eco Agriculture Partners said we need to completely overhaul the agricultural system, and you know she's probably right. But is it going to happen? Are we going to be able to get away from these big monoculture crops? Is it going to happen in time? Yeah, you know, when we had Jeff Sachs on the show a couple months ago, I guess now, I asked him about the organic versus kind of GMO monoculture thing. And he was like, look, I love organic agriculture as much as the next person, but there are a lot of people on the planet and a changing climate. And we don't know if we can feed that many people on a system like that. And so you cannot, you can, he, you know, he was quite, he was quite staunch on that. Morally, you can't write off technologies like that because they may be the only way over the next 10, 20, 30 years to feed that many people. And I'm, I'm inclined to agree. I don't want to give, Monsanto control of the food system, but right. you know, I don't want to demand that if people aren't doing permaculture, they don't get to eat, right? What do you think of the Petri dish grown meat? 
<laughs> I'm well, totally into it, man. Me too. I'm totally I mean, into it. It's there's it's still it's still too lofty. There aren't any there haven't really been done a lot of cost benefit analysis and kind of what would it take to get this off the ground? How you know, like so in, it's still this kind of abstract idea. I'm totally on board. I can totally imagine uh, you know what I would love a world where instead of, you know, real chicken paste in chicken nuggets we have lab meat chicken paste in in chicken nuggets because honestly could you really tell the difference there but you know like i I, we just we we need we need more information i mean and uh i was i was on this uh this this brooklyn bus tour with the group that's a whole other story but Ah, but i was talking with uh with uh, david biello who uh is an editor over at the scientific american and he was he made a good point and that's that if you're growing organs in a lab then there's going to be more pressing uses for it than for, than food. You're gonna. It's gonna take you a long time. You know, if you can grow an organ, and you know, we have these long lists of of backlogs of people who need kidneys. Blah 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 blah. Mm-hmm. For it's gonna be a long time before we can churn out you know enough meat to to feed people before the you know and where the medical demands aren't. aren't That's a good point. But don't you think it's easier to grow something? approaching muscle tissue that would be passable as a chicken nugget than it would be to grow like a pancreas or a heart. <laughs> I have no idea how easy it is to grow any sort of an organ. So I, I, I'll steer clear of that one. Though I All have right. tried. I do, I do have a kidney growing in the bathroom. Uh, last That's last month was homebrew. This year I'm trying to, trying to grow a pair of kidneys. Nice, nice. You've graduated out of kombucha into vital organs. <laughs> yeah, I have them on ice. <laughs> All right. Well, that is everything and more <laughs> that we had for you this week. We will be back next week, hopefully. Until then, feel free to drop us a line, radio at treehugger.com. Adios. Adios.